Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Melissa Urban is CEO of The Whole30 and an authority on helping people create lifelong healthy habits. She is a six-time New York Times bestselling author, including the number one bestseller, The Whole30, and today is here to chat about her latest must-read, which will surely be another bestseller, titled The Book of Boundaries, Set the Limits That Will Set You Free. Melissa, welcome. So good to see you. Hi, Jason. So good to see you again, too. So we were just saying before the show, uh, I think the last time we saw each other was our Revitalized event in June 2019. Yeah, it's been a really long... And before that, I was seeing you pretty often. And yeah. I know it's been it's been a long, a long, hard road. And so I'll start with the, the big question of... Uh, you know, very easy for you to write another Whole30 inspired book. They just sell like hotcakes. Um, but you didn't. Uh, wh- why boundaries? Walk us through your boundaries journey. You know, you mentioned the pandemic and the idea for this book came to me in the middle of the night in October 2020. I woke up with a fully formed book proposal in my head. That was unlike anything I had ever written before. And it's a very natural extension of what I have been doing with The Whole30 since 2009. On The Whole30, as you know, you say no a lot in those 30 days to stick to your health commitments and perform the elimination diet as needed. And people really struggle with saying no in social situations, especially to the break room donuts or their mom's pasta or the alcohol at happy hour. And so I started helping them say no on the Whole30 from day one of my Whole30 journey. And once they realized that I was really good at helping them say no, and that saying no and holding that boundary helped them improve their self-confidence, their relationship, their mental health, their physical health, they started asking me, okay, now I have this really pushy coworker. How could I say no to this person? Or my mother-in-law is constantly dropping by without calling. How can I set a boundary with her? And so this really grew as a very natural extension of the work that I've been doing with Whole30 since 2009. But the, the pandemic really brought this into focus. In March 2020, all of our lives started bleeding together. Work ran into home, ran into school, ran into kids, ran into housework and relationships. And if you weren't already working from home, and even if you were, frankly, I was, people really struggled to figure out where those lines were and how to hold them. And we were all being asked to do so much, especially working moms, that it really brought to light this need to set and hold boundaries as part of your healthy self-care practice. So the time was really right. I had had so much material in working with my community around the subject of boundaries. I had done so much research at this point that when the book proposal came to me, it was like, okay, I know exactly what I want to write. What I thought was so interesting, you know, this idea boundaries is part of your self-care routine. You know, it should be part of the the health and well-being conversation. You know, we tend to think of nutrition, exercise, stress management, mental fitness, managing our mental health, but boundaries need to be part of the conversation. Yes. How do we preserve 
our sleep, our exercise, our nutrition plan, our mental health, our social you know, interactions? How do we preserve those in a way that feels safe and healthy for us? How do we extend an invitation to the people in our lives to stay in our lives in a way that works for both of us, where I am not constantly sacrificing my own needs, my own wants, my own time or energy in the service of others, or prioritizing their comfort over my own? Boundaries is the practice by which all of that happens. Absolutely. And something I really loved about the book is you started with your personal story, you know, partying too much, becoming an addict. You went into great detail about what that looked like. And so that was something I think a lot of people will appreciate and can relate to. Even, you know, there were, there were things I, I was never an addict per se, but I partied, there were way too much in my high school, my high school, college and post-college years. And there were a lot of stories. I, I said, yep, know that, know that. Um, and you relate it to boundaries in a sense. It ladders up. And so can, can you, I, we don't tend to think about, you know, going back to this again, like I think it's important to note, we tend to think of boundaries. You know, we talk about well-being, you know, ba- boundaries we kind of put in a box. Can you talk about boundaries and how you see it relating to addiction and and your journey and making that connection for people that may not be intuitive to them? Absolutely. You know, the first boundary I ever remember setting happened the second time I entered recovery, which ended up being the last time. And I say in the book, quite literally, this boundary probably saved my life. I found myself at a party that I didn't belong in with people I didn't know, with who knows, you know, God knows what going on in the bathroom, very shaky after a relapse, just having entered into recovery for the second time. And in a just absolute moment of desperation, said to my friend sitting there, I can't be here. We need to go home. And that was the boundary that literally changed everything for me. It was the first time I had advocated for myself with someone else. Previously in my recovery, I had set just one very shaky boundary with myself. I'm not going to use. I'm going to try not to use. And I didn't do anything to shore that up. I relied on nothing but luck and you know circumstance and willpower and Um, maybe a, a lack of temptation to be able to hold that boundary. And when I was finally able to say, I have a need, I'm not okay, this is what I need right now to keep myself safe and healthy and like quite literally save my own life, it unlocked this world of possibility. I was so afraid that setting boundaries would make my life smaller. I imagined them as we've all been conditioned to think about them as selfish and cold and mean. I imagined them as walls to keep me at a distance or keep other people at a distance. And it turns out that boundaries are actually freedom. They make your life bigger. They expand it. I now was able to have trust with my friends and the people in my social circle that they knew where my limits are and they would respect them. I was able to advocate for myself knowing that in situations, I would be able to keep myself safe. I wasn't reliant on anyone else to look out for me or take care of me. I knew what I was going to do to keep myself safe and healthy. And rather than hiding in my recovery, which is what I had done the first year, I was now able to go out into the world and realize that not only was I worthy of setting these limits for myself, but I knew how to do it. 
And it expanded my life beyond my wildest imagination. And that was really my deeply personal experience with boundaries 22 years ago. I think it speaks to this message of empowerment. You know, whether you're looking to lose weight or shed alcohol, someone else can't do it for you. You need to do the work. And and we've all had experiences where I think someone else is maybe pushing us to do something we don't want to. And, and like one of my all-time favorite passages from your book is your ex-boyfriend, Nate. Because I don't hear you... you, <laughs> you he, he, he's earned the favorite ex label, which you don't hear. I, I've, I've never heard that. And you talk about the book. So, so can, can you explain to everyone what Nate did to earn that distinguished distinction of Melissa Urban's favorite ex? I mean, I texted with him just the other day and I was like, you know, I still call you my favorite ex-boyfriend. And he was like, I'm honored. Thank you. We still have a, a good relationship to this day. Nate was the first person in my most active addiction when I was just spiraling and very off the rails and no longer able to moderate when I really needed to. This was like the tail end. He was the first person to ever try to set a boundary with me. And I recognize now that it was for his own protection and it was in a desperate attempt to preserve our relationship. But it was, you know, Melissa, if you're going to stay out really late and I don't know where you are, I just need you to text me so I know you're okay. Melissa, I I will keep working on this with you, but I need you to keep talking to your therapist and making sure that like you are in a safe and healthy mental health space. Um, so he tried really hard to set healthy boundaries with me, both for his own self-preservation, because what I was doing was incredibly destructive to his health and his mental health and our relationship. And of course, I resented him for them. Of course, I could not, I could not respect them in that moment because I was so deep in the throes of my addiction. And eventually the final boundary he set with me was, I'm going to call someplace right now and I will drive you to a rehab facility and like I will make sure that you get the help you need and the support that you need. And if you aren't able to do that in this moment, I have to remove myself from this relationship. I cannot allow myself to continue to give and be harmed by your behavior. And by divine intervention, I said yes. I said I would go. But he modeled healthy boundaries for me for the very first time in a way that I did not recognize until so much later. And I give him so much credit for the incredibly healthy and mature way he handled this. We were just kids, you know, living together. It was our first like real serious relationship. But yeah, that's why he's my favorite to this day. You know, I think that's an example of boundaries in a, in a real serious circumstance. Um, and I also think of boundaries in our world as the everyday boundaries, specifically with with family, more specifically around food, being healthy around food, when many of our listeners, myself included, have a strong belief or a strong point of view about food, while you know maybe others in our family or our circle don't. And, and I think that's in the context of you know, we care about said family members' well-being, so we want them to take care of themselves um, or, you know, our, our, our children. Uh, and and we care about what family members or friends expose our children to because obviously we care about our kids. And as, I, as I'm reading your book, I'm like, oh, wow, like we got a lot of work to do in terms of boundaries because I, I totally get it in one sense, you know, Food is so powerful, nutrition is powerful. We've all seen what it can do for people. And 
boundaries are kind of critical and there there's like everyday real conversations that need to be had so i'll pause there and, and how do you view that like big kimono if you will of boundaries when it comes to our world specifically around food it's very important to remember that boundaries are not about telling someone else what they can or cannot do. A boundary is not designed to control someone else. A boundary is designed to let other people know what actions we are going to take in the face of perhaps their behavior to keep ourselves safe and healthy. So when I set a boundary around what I'm eating or the conversations, say diet talk, this is a really common one. I get questions all the time from readers who say, my family is deeply entrenched in diet culture, as we all were growing up, and they still consider, you know, you look skinny as the highest form of compliment. They're constantly talking about what is on their plate and everyone else's plate, including my kids. They're, you know, pinching their thighs and making, you know, bad faces and talking about saving their calories for alcohol. The boundary in this situation is not to tell your family, you can't talk about your diets anymore. You can't talk about weight loss. You can't be entrenched in diet culture. You can't set that boundary for them. What you can do is say, I will not participate in those conversations anymore. And usually that starts with a request. You know, I have a three-tiered level approach to my boundary conversations, green, yellow, and red, based on the level of threat that this boundary overstep involves. And a green level boundary is generally a request that lets them know that you have this limit and where that limit lies because they're not mind readers. So you might say, oh, just so you know, it makes me really uncomfortable when we talk about the food that's on our plate while we're eating. Can we not bring that subject of conversation up and then change the subject? Or you might say something like, I'm, in, I'm not in a great place with my mental health when it comes to my body or weight. So it would really be helpful for me if we chose not to talk about our bodies or our weight when we get together. Is that something you're willing to do? That's the way you set the boundary. If they are unable or unwilling to respect it after reminders, perhaps stronger language, then ultimately your boundary is I'm going to remove myself from this conversation, which may mean leaving the table saying to grandma, okay, grandma, the kids and I are going to go for a walk now because this is not a conversation that I want them to be a part of. Maybe it means setting even stricter boundaries with your family. Like, it seems like we just can't eat together without this being a subject of conversation. So I'll come by after dinner. But you're always focused on the actions that you are going to take on behalf of yourself and perhaps your younger children to keep you safe and healthy. So I think that's how I want to frame boundaries, especially when it comes to food and health. And how do you think about, this is top of mind for me because we have two little kids. Um, how do you think about the boundary conversation when you have a family member who's, you know, wants to give your kid Cheetos? Oh, yeah. Um, very common situation. You know, there's a whole section in the book specifically about grandparents because I hear so many stories. And like, I've had to have this conversation with my own dad too. My dad thinks ice cream is like the best treat ever. And he loves giving my son ice cream. And I had to have a conversation with him where I said, I have asked you not to give him ice cream. When he eats ice cream, his eczema flares. And that's not fun or happy for either of us. So I need you to find another way to treat him that doesn't involve ice cream. 
Here are some options. I'll bring you some dairy-free ice cream that you can serve him from home. We can make gluten-free chocolate chip cookies together. Like There are other ways that you can, but I had to set a really strict boundary. Had he not respected that, then it would be like, sorry, grandpa, but I can't send my son to your house unsupervised because I don't, I can't trust that you are respecting my parenting decisions with my own child. And hopefully it never comes to that, but you have to have the conversation away from food. You have to be willing to hold the boundary, which can involve consequences and may, you know, involve changing the relationship dynamic, even if temporarily. And you have to, this is a different, a difficult part, but you might have to have a conversation with your kiddo, you know, especially if grandpa says, oh, I, I want to give you ice cream, but mom won't let me. Like, that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, in that case, then it's like, okay, grandpa, like, that's not very nice. We know that my son doesn't do dairy because of his eczema. That's not his fault. What else could we do to offer treats? And then that's like a side conversation with grandpa after the fact, because that's not very mature. You know, Colleen and I had a proud moment the other week when our five and a half year old, my, my mother, who was watching her at the time, our five and a half year old daughter, Ellie, had a friend over and the friend had Pirate's Booty yeah. and she offered Ellie Pirate's Booty and Ellie said, no, thank you. That's terrible for you. Didn't you know? <laughs> well, she was polite. Like it just rolled off her. Yeah. We were like. Okay, she does listen to us. But that's your friend. I'm glad you were polite about it. But we kind of had like a proud parent moment. Like, all right, go Ellie. Said no. But yeah, it's it's hard. Kids are always listening for sure. And like the more you're modeling healthy boundaries at home and these healthier conversations, I don't, you know, I don't know that you would necessarily ever say to someone else's kid, like, that's terrible. But obviously, they pick up on what we're saying. So <laughs> definitely said that's terrible in front of her. And I'm like, okay, that just went, went straight from her to her, her classmate. Uh, so, you know, you, you mentioned your dad, and I think of, you know, parents, grandparents, and, you know, th there's, we care for people deeply in our lives who always aren't making the best decisions with regards to their health and well-being. And, you know, with taking boundaries under consideration, how does one have a conversation in a way that someone is not going to feel threatened? You don't, because I don't want to evolve, you know, I think we all got the, you know, boundaries are important without violating their boundary. If we're going to have a conversation around diet, like, you know, you know, dad, or, you know, mom, heart disease runs in our family and you're probably eating a little bit too much bacon. You probably shouldn't have any, like how do you have conversations around food nutrition when you see people you love just making really poor decisions and it's killing you and you know, it's going to kill them eventually. How do you do that? The difficult but definitive answer is that you do not because that is not your business. If they have not asked you for help, if they have not asked you for your opinion or your advice, my firm stance is that you do not offer it unsolicited. I recognize how hard it is to watch someone you love doing something that you believe is harmful to them when you have information that you think would help so much. Like I've gone through this with my own mother and also my mom is a fully functioning adult with agency and autonomy and her right to live her life as she chooses. And unless and until she asks me 
to help. She asks me for my opinion or my advice. I do not offer it unsolicited. That is, I think, the kindest way and the the only way you can go about doing this. Now, I'm not saying you can't do anything. I talk often to my whole 30 years about leading by quiet example. And that doesn't mean, you know, ordering water instead of wine at lunch and saying to your mom, like, oh, I read this story about alcohol's effect on, you know, menopausal women. Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about leading by quiet example. You make the choices that make you feel the best. You can certainly talk about like, oh man, yeah, my energy's been great lately. I'm really happy that I'm able to play with the kids or I'm sleeping really well these days and that feels really good. Gentle. But unless they ask you for more information or unless they ask you like, what have you been doing or what's different or what's changed or tell me about why that's on your plate, that's it. That's your business. And I, if you are you can't be in someone else's business. That's that's the difficult answer. So it, it is. It's diff- that's a hard line, and it is difficult when you love someone and you see them really making very poor decisions. But what's the alternative? The alternative is me going to my mom, inserting myself into her life, and saying, "I'm observing this. I think you could do better." She didn't ask for my opinion. It's likely going to make her defensive. It's likely going to make her feel threatened. I am now all up in my mom's business. So who is minding my own? Who is taking care of my health, my diet, if I'm so hyper-focused on my mom's? And I have no way to be effective because I cannot force someone else to do anything or to make any changes. So I'm not just saying this to preserve the relationship, but I'm saying it's an ineffectual use of your time and energy. Lead by quiet example. If asked, provide as much information as you can from a place of compassion and non-judgment and satisfying their curiosity, but then you got to take a step back and go back to living your own life. So a clarifying question, does it make a difference if it is about alcohol consumption or drug use? Okay. So now we're treading into the territory of their behavior potentially having an impact, a harmful impact on your life. And there's so much of this that is like, it depends. And I'm not a therapist and I'm not a drug and alcohol counselor. You know, my mom's continuation to like eat the way she eats and have her chronic shoulder tendonitis be so bad and painful that she can't put her shirt on effectively or can't lift up my son, that really sucks for her, but that's not having a harmful effect on me. That is not my business. If I'm living with this person and their alcohol or drug consumption is having a negative effect on me or my kids, it's obviously a different conversation and a different situation. So yes, there is a line, right? There is a line in which you would want to say, this is what I'm observing from you and this is the negative effect it's having on me. It's what Nate did to me during my addiction. But I'd venture to say that a lot of our parents' or family members' decisions around food Other than us saying like, God, I really wish you'd be around for a really long time for me and the kids, which is kind of treading that line of inserting yourself where not being asked, but is not an unreasonable thing to express because it's a very real feeling. It's hard to know where that line is. I'll say that. Well, I I love, I love the chapter title and the chapter when, when the drama is your mama. And and so without going into everything in the chapter, uh, Curious, what, what are some of the most common pitfalls we have in that scenario when the drama is your mama? What are we doing wrong? 
Well, I mean, I think we have to understand where boundary oversteps and these unhealthy relationship dynamics stem from in the first place, right? My parents were not modeled healthy boundaries by their parents. They weren't taught them in school. They weren't taught them on the job. It wasn't a life skill that was imparted upon them. And so they didn't have it modeled for them. I didn't have it modeled for me. And so we have these dysfunctional family dynamics where uh, one kid is always the peacemaker or parents are asking children to pick sides or parents don't model or respect children when they try to set healthy boundaries. And certainly children observe their parents not setting healthy boundaries with other family members. And like these dynamics just get passed down. And one person in the family kind of has to take action and be the change maker and say, I recognize that this pattern is dysfunctional. I recognize that it's not helping me or our relationship. And I am going to be the one to like volunteer myself as tribute to put myself on the line and start setting and holding these healthy boundaries. And be prepared that there's probably going to be some pushback. There's probably going to be a lot of chaos in the family because nobody is used to engaging with you like that. So I think that's like some background that's really important to understand. I think one of the ways we go wrong, and I see this a lot with in-laws, is just like, well, that's just how they are. They can't change. And I'm like, well, that's you know just what they have been telling you to maintain these privileges that like they haven't earned, but you've kept on giving them. That's kind of the way to make sure that that relationship dynamic sticks is them emphasizing like, this is just how we are. We can't change. And again, you can't change them, but it only takes one person to change a relationship dynamic. And that person can be you setting and holding healthy boundaries. I also want to make sure that people understand to set the boundary, you have to actually set the boundary. So passive aggressive communication, eye rolling, talking about it behind their back with other people, but never directly with that person or making a joke of it is not actually setting a boundary. You have to use clear, kind language directly with that person to share what your limits are and what they could do if they choose to respect those limits. So, you know, a few pitfalls when it comes to family and just boundaries in general. But I think now we're in this generation where if you're on the side, you know, the TikTok side of boundaries, or if you're following boundary therapists on Instagram, like this is in the zeitgeist right now. And I think we have a lot of opportunities to be the change makers in our family, not just with our family, you know, above us, but with our kids as well. So we can model healthy boundaries so they don't have to grow up the same way that we did. So we've talked about parents, in-laws, kids. How have you reevaluated your friendships since doing all this work? Oh, 2020 did a number on friendships, didn't it? Between COVID and the election and social justice efforts, like it was, I did a lot of blocking and a lot of unfriending and a lot of reevaluating because that brought out like people's, you know, true colors. And there were quite a few folks where I was like, we do not share the same values. And for me, in a lot of cases, um, that's just an absolute like boundary, uh, you know, necessity. I'm not talking about, you know, not agreeing on like whether pineapple is good on pizza. I'm talking about agreeing on whether or not like certain lives matter or, you know, certain people uh, should be afforded basic human rights. Did someone win an election? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes, we will. Yeah, we will not be discussing that. But, you know, I think, again, because so much of our life is lived online, especially during the pandemic, 
people tended to let boundary violations slide because it was kind of easy to dissolve yourself into other areas of social media. And and it's hard with friends. Breakups with friends are almost harder than breakups with relationships because nobody expects you and your friend to be monogamous friends for the rest of your life. And you tend to get different things from different friend groups. So you kind of do tend to tolerate these little, little maybe, things with certain friends where you're like, oh, this person is like very emotionally draining. But, you know, they do this, this, and this. And like, I'll get that from them. And I'll get my emotional needs met from this friend. So we tend to kind of let those things slide. And it can feel abrupt or dramatic to need to or want to break up with a friend. But we've all had so much of our energy just zapped in the last three years. Like I talk about energy leakage in the book, and we are all just leaking energy left and right. And we don't have a lot of capacity for that friend who is an emotional vampire anymore, for the friend who's the constant drama queen, for the one who's you know always trying to control you. Like We don't have capacity anymore. So there's a big section in the book about how to effectively break up with a friend, how to know when it's time, and actually how to do it. Before I go to emotional vampires, <laughs> I, I do think I, I'm interested by this idea of social media and the role it's playing in boundaries. So absolutely agree. You know, it, it's in the zeitgeist and that's good. And I also think that with social media, with texting, we've become, not everyone, but and I'm generalizing, but you know, I'll just do it anyway. I think it would become poor communicators. And I think it's, I think to be really good at boundaries, you have to be a very strong communicator. And I think my take is communication on social media has deteriorated. And because of the algorithm, I'll just blame the algorithm, extreme points of view on anything, whether it's pineapples or politics are rewarded and very clear, concise, balanced points of view, no value. I was joking with someone, I'm joking with Colleen, like how many Mediterranean diet influencers do you see on Instagram? It's like Mediterranean diet is like pretty balanced. It's like, you can't kind of, kind of agree with it, but like, uh, I can't think of anyone. <laughs> Keto, so like, so like going to boundaries, you know, to me, it's so clear boundaries plays a significant role in our well-being routine. But then the question has become is like the execution. Like, are we equipped in the social media world where so many people have difficulty, especially I think a younger generation, having difficult conversations face to face, being very clear communicators? I'm like, there's a there's a there's a there's a lot to bite off here. We need this, but I'm going to see a lot of poor execution via text message. <laughs> I know. It it's really challenging, you know, text message, Instagram comments. Not only do they not leave a lot of room for nuance and you certainly don't get the same kind of tone or empathy or mirroring that you get with in-person communications, you have character limits. Um you have the like the dopamine rush of seeing this comment that enrages you because we are all just like, you know, fueled by outrage on social media. 
And like you want to answer right away. So you're not pausing. You're not reflecting. You're not asking yourself like, why am I taking this very personally? Why am I feeling so, you know, really defensive about this? Like what's happening for me? It's just way easier and so convenient to like fire something back. And now you're sort of in this exchange. So sometimes the only way you have to set a boundary is via text or via email or via a handwritten letter because you're not face-to-face with that person. And in some ways, setting a boundary on social media is actually quite easy because you are always in control of who you follow, who you give access to, which commenters get blocked or muted or deleted. Like You are in full control of that. And I highly encourage people to actively make their social media feed a place that feels uplifting and connecting and educational and you know some place that you would enjoy going where you feel lifted up instead of constantly questioning yourself or engaging in these you know negative pieces of self-talk but i think the communication piece of it goes back like even further than social media one of my key kind of tenets in the book, my relationship golden rule is this idea of saying what you mean and expecting others to do the same. And let me tell you, that is a wild concept in today's day and age for so many reasons, because we've, women have been conditioned to be passive and like not say what we mean. And like, honestly, can we even trust what we mean? Because we're just women and we like usually need men to tell us how we feel and what we think and what we need. And are we even allowed to have needs? And you know, that's incredibly prevalent in certain cultures, especially with heavy religious influence. And we've learned to kind of talk around issues. And we've been taught that speaking what we mean is rude. I can't tell you the number of times people say to me, I could never say that. That's rude. And I'm like, that was perfectly polite. It was just direct. And you're not used to direct right now. So there's this like whole conversation around communication saying what you mean and expecting others to do the same that I think is so important to have around boundaries. One of the things I say all the time is, Jason, unless you tell me there is a problem, there's no problem. And I'm not going to try to interpret your tone or question your story or wondering if you're mad at me. No. If you're upset with me, you will tell me. And until you tell me, there is no problem and I will not carry that. And that's not a norm. I don't think that's a common way of interacting these days. And I think everyone's relationships would be so much better if it was. Agreed. So I want to come back. I just, I I always get a kick out of emotional vampires. Uh, (laughs) So walk us through how we identify the emotional vampires in our life. We, We all have them. Yeah. These are the people, I mean, there are a lot of ways and I guarantee as I rattle these off, you're gonna be like, yeah, I got one of those. But Um, You just, you dread interacting with them at this point. You don't want to pick up the phone. If you see them in the break room, you go the other direction. When they approach you at a party, you're like, okay, I know what I'm in for. You just, you, their interactions, you're just resisting. When you leave, you just feel drained. You feel drained. They are taking so much more and like you're not getting anything back. They never ask you about themselves. About yourself. They don't ask you about your life or your day. And when you try to bring up something in the conversation, they may say you're being insensitive because how dare you bring up something about you when I'm clearly struggling this hard? There are so many signs of this like emotional vampire friends who, for whatever reason, are just incapable of having a true, equitable partnership. 
Um, you know, you they ask you for advice, you offer advice, they never take it. And you have the same conversations over and over on, you know, repeat like Groundhog Day. <laughs> All signs. Sounds a little bit like not a perfect picture of a narcissist, but I think there are some similar qualities. That's one type of emotional vampire. The narcissist is absolutely one of them. The drama queen is another one where like they're always in the middle of this drama and they need to pull you into their drama. The controller is another one where everything you do is like almost good enough, but not quite. And they're going to tell you how you could do it better. There are a few different subtypes. Yes. And so in terms of all the work you did in your personal life, was there like one specific practice or you incorporated where you just said, wow, like the ROI on this is amazing. I can't believe I, I, I didn't do this 10 years ago. It would have saved me so much drama. Was there one thing that stood out to you? Yeah. You know, when I met my now husband, he was really in the throes of serious depression. He and I have talked about this on my podcast and he's absolutely fine with me discussing it. And I loved him so much and I had never met someone who was so had such dark thoughts and it was like really on the surface and i thought that if i just gave him enough of myself that i could help him if i just gave him enough of my energy my time my love my admiration like i wanted to patch his holes so much <clears throat> and it broke us we we broke up in part because i was I couldn't sustain that energy and it wasn't helping him because I couldn't do it for him. When we got back together after I had done a lot of therapy on my own and he had done some therapy, you know, one of our earliest conversations was like, I will always be here to support you. I am here to listen, but like I am will not take on what you are carrying. Like it's not mine to carry. I will do everything in my power to help. I will encourage you to make sure that like, I'm not the only person you talk to. I can't be the only person you talk to about this. I need you to have a more robust support system because that's really heavy for me to carry. I am going to re take responsibility for my own feelings and my own support around this. And I will maintain my own therapy practice. So you don't have to worry about me. And like, I will always tell you exactly how I feel. But there is this, like I actually went through like a cord cutting ceremony an energetic cord cutting ceremony where I was like, I am here for you. I love you. I support you. And also this is not mine. And that was so incredibly impactful. And I think made all the difference in this health of our relationship going forward. So how do you think about that fine line of being a partner who, you know, part of being a great partner is being supportive, being there, but having it cross over to something that is draining, unproductive, and ultimately not good for the relationship because part of being a partner is supportive and being there. How do you think about that? I think that I need my partner to take responsibility for his own feelings and not simply dump them onto me to like do something with. So I had this conversation with my therapist just the other day. I was like, man, I'm really struggling. A friend of mine is really upset about something and I'm like grieving and I'm having a hard time being present for her because I don't know how to not take that on. And it feels so heavy and hard and like, I don't know how to do it without a wall. And she was like, Melissa, you sit with her and hold space for her but you don't have to pick any of that up. And I was like, oh, okay. 
there's no wall between us, but there's also no like vacuum, right? I can be present and be supportive and also recognize that her feelings are her responsibility and do whatever I can to help her process them in a helpful and healing way and like be there and listen and offer support and say the right things, but like it's not mine to carry. And I think that's the important thing. If I have a friend or a partner who dumps and then just leaves, that's very different than a friend or partner saying, I'm, I need to vent. Here's everything that's going on. Okay, thank you for listening. What do you think I should do about it? And then they do it. Or here's what I'm going to do about it. And then they do it, right? That's a very different experience. Versus can you fix this? Yeah, or, or versus just here's all my shit. Here's yeah. all my stuff. <laughs> you know? I'll come back to where we started and this idea of well-being, you know, boundaries being an important practice in our toolkit. And, you know, some people will, you know, as you, as you rank the, the pillars or tools, if you will, you know, some people will put nutrition first. You know, Mark Hyman has that great famous line, you, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. Uh, Peter Atia is everywhere these days saying exercise, exercise, exercise. Um, obviously, boundaries is part of the conversation. H how do you rank, if you will, boundaries? And like, where, where does it fit? Is it, you know, above sleep, below nutrition? Is it number one? Like, I know, and I know we're all unique. But like, what's your point of view of like how critical it is? It's so hard. You know, the name of my first book is It Starts With Food. Because in 2010, I, it starts with food. And then if you ask me later, you know, I might say like, well, I don't know. I mean, I can make a case for that, but sleep is so important. Stress management is so important. I would think of boundaries as a thread that just interconnects all of them. I might call it a foundation, but that almost makes it hierarchical more than I intend. So think of boundaries as like a magical golden thread weaving its way through all of these different pillars of wellness in that it you require this practice to be woven into the framework of your nutrition, of your exercise, of your sleep, of your self-care, of your spirituality, in order to preserve those practices, you need the framework of boundaries or you need a healthy boundary practice, boundaries with yourself, boundaries with others. So that's how I would think of it is this like, call it a, call boundaries a supportive hammock for all of your wellness practices, a magical golden hammock. I like that. I love it. I love it. Magical golden havoc. I love it. And so on your journey, what was the biggest surprise for you personally when you were doing this work? How many people were perfectly happy to say, oh, I didn't know you had a limit there. Thank you for sharing it with me. Yeah, of course. I'll respect that. And then just move on. I was so, I mean, especially when I first entered into recovery, I did not think my life had worth or value. I struggled to see myself as anything other than this addict who had done terrible things and was desperately trying to claw her way out of being like a really bad person. And so it made it really hard for me to try to advocate for myself in any capacity with anybody and I went into almost all these conversations preparing for battle. I assumed when I set that first boundary with my friend at that party that he would laugh at me, call me ridiculous, and then go off to like do God knows what with God knows who. And he didn't. He was like, oh, wow, I didn't know. Can I ask you a few questions? Yes. Um, should we leave right now? Yes, please. We left. I was shocked at how many people 
want to be good relationship partners and just don't know where your limits lie because they're not mind readers. And when you express them clearly and kindly and share how they will benefit you and benefit the relationship, how many of them will say, yeah, happy to do that. And isn't that a gift? And so in closing, you know, knowing again, I think, I think what you said was accurate that boundaries is entered the zeitgeist. And a lot of people are interested in boundaries and other than buying the book, which I encourage everyone to do, uh, is there one thing that we would all benefit from incorporating in, into our everyday in terms of our, our boundaries routine, if you will, where we would see immediate benefit? Yes. Incorporate a pause before saying yes to anything. This is one simple practice that you can start today. Before you say yes to anything, incorporate a pause. Maybe it's just a moment for you to think, is this glass of wine really worth it? Maybe it's, wow, that does sound fun, but I'm going to need to check my schedule and see what else we have going on that weekend. I'll let you know tomorrow. Maybe it's, I appreciate you thinking of me for this business opportunity. Give me a few days to think about my capacity and I'll get back to you. Buy yourself a pause so that you are not automatically saying yes and overextending yourself so that you break the habit of constantly putting other people's comfort or needs ahead of your own and so that you can remind yourself that you're worthy of making the decision that is in your highest interest. Simple pause. I love it. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's always good to talk to you.